Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's actually late on uh, Saturday night, but uh, I'm not doing my lecture series anymore. And uh, I feel up to it enough, so I think I'll take a whack at the um, at the biography. I actually have been doing different history things lately, as you know. And Anna Hoffman really gave it to me the other day. He says, I want you to do the biographies. I don't have to listen to him. That's a good thing about this. I don't listen to anybody, but uh, I'll do it um, this week for a reason. And because Purim is coming up, you'll see what I mean in a minute. Uh, this podcast is being sponsored by the Krugers. Chaim and Shoshi Kruger, Shoshi Rothschild Kruger, because um, they're, bar- first of all, two, two, two samples. It's actually very nice. I think he was originally planning to do his just for the Bar Mitzvah. The Ellie uh, Kruger, the, the, the Bar Mitzvah, is coming Shabbos. Uh, but then, meanwhile, something else popped up. His daughter got engaged. So that's good, okay? I see Meir to Yehuda Newman of Cleveland. Um, I think it's the Newman family where my sister used to stay, but I'm not sure. Uh, anyway, as he's a special model of the grandparents, Mordecai and Chabi Rothschild, yes. And Mrs. Shoshana Kruger and great-grandmother, Mrs. Sylvia Weiss, yes. And a special model of the Chassan's parents, this is the new couple, Yaakov, Hitzik Yaakov and Essie Newman, and the grandparents of the Chassan Rabbi, Mrs. Merkin in Silver Spring. Oh, I see, okay. So in other words, it's a double simcha, that, and it's, it's the week of Purim. So basically, as they say, it can't get better than that. So mazel up to the Kruger family in general. And Chaim is always a, a, a listener of the podcast. <clears throat> and now, um, I'm going to do, I looked it up. I thought I did in the past, but I guess I didn't. And that's uh, Alkabetz, L'Chododi. But I'm doing it for the reason of Purim, obviously for the Monas Halevi. Hopefully you don't understand a word I just said, so I'm going to explain. Our hero today was a big Sephardic rabbi in the 1500s, in the golden era of the Spartan after the, the exile from Spain. The Spartan, of course, were kicked out of Spain, as we all know, in 1492. And the question is, what happened to him afterwards? Okay? Um, so here we deal with the 16th century. And uh, one of these types of figures, you know, the, the, the rabbis not only cookie cutters, and some are like this, and some are like that, and some are post-given, and some are unfortunate, and some are poets, as you see, and some are Kabbalists. So our hero today um, falls into the category one of those people that a lot of what he wrote didn't get published, but he hit a couple of home runs, which is, I mean, home runs. And uh, that's better than many. So let me uh, explain what I mean. Oh, here's a Shlomo Levi Alkabitz, um, who, uh, born around 1500, something like that, you know, they don't know exactly, early 1500s, and lived all of his life in the 1500s. And he died in the 1570s or 80s, Different opinions among scholars doesn't matter. Here's a guy living in all that period. The Jews were kicked out of Spain. Um, understand this well. In 1492, the Christians said, all the Jews here, if they want to stay, have to convert to Christianity. Otherwise, you leave. And about half did that. So notice, half the Jews in Spain, that's a lot, stayed and became Gaim. Okay, I mean, it happened. 
So the other half that left were real heroes. That's what I'm just writing to them. Real heroes. Uh, they gave up their property. Uh, you know, they gave up uh, all kind of other good things that were going on over there. These are heroes. And they had a heck of a time leaving. If you read the book called Shevet Yehuda, which is not necessarily all true, but a lot of it certainly is, there were terrible sufferings by the Jews who left Spain, the good people, on the way out, because they were screwed right and left, and pirates killed them, and Arabs killed them, and all kind of terror, and they were uh, 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 ted by phonies who dropped them off at desert islands where they starved to death. It was a terrible time. Um, this is well known. So the kind of things we're seeing today with the Ukrainian refugees is nothing compared to what these guys had to put up with in 1492. And obviously, I do need to tell you that there was no state of Israel with a Mossad and a Sochnot to take them in. Now, for the most part, they moved to the Turkish Empire. Listen closely to what I'm about to say. There used to be a country called the Ottoman Turkish Empire. It's not there anymore. This was a group that started in what you and I today call Turkey, but primarily grew in Europe, in Christian Europe. Now, this was a Muslim group. The Imams developed itself as a military state, and they succeeded in conquering little by little the Balkans, what you and I today call Greece, Bulgaria, um, Yugoslavia, and those kind of places. So again, they're a Muslim group, and they're always conquering the Christians. They weren't so much in Asia. They were more in the Europe side for a long, long time. And they developed ways, I won't go into it in great details, of uh, turning their captives into soldiers for them and junk like that. And uh, they really were a highly militarized state and were pretty successful in their, in their wars of constant expansion, particularly in the time that we're talking about. So if you're talking about the 1400s, 1500s, they were really on the roll, and they let the Jews in. Now, they let the Jews in not because they were nice, but because they felt it was good for their economy. And to tell you the truth, the Jews who left Spain in 1492 included some people who had what we would call today high-tech military knowledge by the standards of the 15th century, which means they knew about cannons and guns and all of this. The revolutionary new military technology to change the face of warfare. So they had their reasons for letting them in, but they did. And the Jews settled uh, in the period I'm talking about in the Ottoman Empire, which was what we say to the Balkans and maybe, you know, part of the Turkish peninsula. So think, for example, of Istanbul. Think of Salonika, which never was a Greek city. It is today, but it was a, a city under the Turks, and that's where a lot of Jews moved. It's a port city and became a Mi'kmaq of Judaism, but also many other area, cities in those areas, most of which you've never heard of, because why should you know anything about the Balkans? You're not Bulgarians, you're not Turks or Greeks, and so you learned about Thrace and, you know, Macedonia and uh, cities near Constantinople or Istanbul, like Adrianople, Adirne. Um, I was in, uh, what do you call it, Seattle, X number of years ago, a couple times, and I remember they called them Turkey Gear, you know, they, these are little places near uh, Istanbul, and at the time I'm talking about, they had a lot of Jewish communities over there, small ones. And Salonika became a big one. I've spoken about that before. If you listen to the Marish Dom, what I did, and others. And so, all of a sudden, because of the influx of the refugees from Spain, um, it became a flourishing, it became a hotbed of Judaism. Because the Sephardim included all kinds of types. They included dummies and idiots, but they also included big scholars, big Tamil Chachamim, and, and, and merchants and stuff like that. And our hero was born, let's see, they, they kicked the Jews out 
1492. She was born about 10 years after that. Maybe even less, possibly. So think about that. It's the decade. It's a little bit, you know, like, like my generation, where we were born in America, but our parents came not that long before from Europe, after the Holocaust. So, I mean, it's not precisely like the Holocaust, but you know, you get what I'm saying. This is the experience of growing up in a refugee environment. It's like growing up in New York in the 50s and 60s, you know, when they still have a lot of Yiddish stuff going around and a lot of the old country is still there. In this case, the old country would be Spain. And the Jews coming to speak Spanish or Ladino. And that's the environment in which our hero grows up. Or is he exactly from Spain? Was one of the local Turkish Jews who was Sephardi eyes? We don't, it doesn't matter. All I know is that he ends up in a yeshiva in Salonika, which uh, Rabbi Yosef Taitzak, who you've never heard of, was one of the Gedoli Ador, one of the big biggies. Let's put it this way, Yosef Kara started in his yeshiva. And I would say, generally speaking, that this uh, guy that you never heard of, Rabbi Yosef Taitzak, established more or less what we would call a volusion for the Spartan. I'm serious about this. In other words, the best guys went there, we talked before about Shlomo Mocho, S.A.S. Ricaro, the Marsh Dom, and all that. And our hero, Shlomo Alibi Alkabetz, ends up learning there. So he's going to be in his lifetime a big Talmud Chacham, but he never takes a job as a rabbi anywhere. So it's not the type that I often do, which is somebody who was an Avbeznin, or a famous Dayan, or wrote Halacha books, or Gemara commentaries. That's not his specialty. Although he knew a lot. And just because he didn't publish in that doesn't mean he didn't know it. It's just not what his passion was. The Rambam says there's a different part of Torah or Mitzvahs that, that, that appeal to different people. And even within the area of scholarship, I would say, there's some type of people that will become, that what really makes him passionate would be, you know, uh, commenting, commenting on the Tanakh. Doesn't mean they don't want to learn. The Tanakh turns them on. Or a Makubal, right? You know, uh, just because the Cordovero didn't write about the, on the Shahs doesn't mean he didn't know. They knew, but what really passioned them, excited them, was the Kabbalah. See, uh, you know, our hero fits into that category, as we shall see. So imagine a guy plugging away, and he goes through Shahs and that kind of stuff. And I know he knew Aloha. He did. Um, and he's in Salonika. And he ends up marrying a story as a rich girl. So uh, probably at that time, you can imagine, you know, the situation. This is uh, the Veloz at the time, the Lakewood at the time, whatever you want. He married a rich girl. Um, but she married a guy in learning. So notice, he personally didn't have any money. The wife's family had the money. And it, I'm talking 1529. So figure he was born in 1505. Here's a guy in his 20s. Uh, and here comes the famous story that he present, and this is uh, what, what made me think about it this week, this biography, in terms of Purim, and that is that Kim Shalachmanis time, and all the other guys give their father-in-law's fancy Shalachmanis, as you can imagine, as we used to call in Baltimore Raimundis, you know, you get f fancy fruit baskets, and this and that and the other, uh, but he was broke. Now, I don't quite understand that 100%, because if he had a rich wife, you know, they should have been supporting him. Maybe he lost the money in a bad investment. Anything's possible. We don't know. All we know is the story, which is told in the Doris and other history books at that time, which is he couldn't afford to get his father-in-law a fancy shalchmanis like everybody else of his type. 
And so he wrote a Sefer instead. And the Sefer was in the form of a commentary in the book of Esther, and he gave it to the father-in-law, and therefore instead of Shalach Monas, he gave him a book, and that's why we call this book Monas Alevi, Minos Alevi, the Shalach Monas from Shlomo Alevi Alkabetz. The Monas Alevi, which is what made me think about this um, story in the first place, is a fantastic. Um, it's my favorite book, or one of them, so my favorite book on Purim, and many other people down the centuries. In this book, which he wrote early in life, he wrote many others that none of them achieved anywhere near the fame of the first one. Um, he hit the jackpot because it became a, fam- a favorite in Claudius Row. And I imagine many of the people living to this, listening to this podcast know what I'm talking about. But I also am sure that many people li- listening to this podcast do not know what I'm talking about. And it's to you especially, I call your attention during this week to the Sefer Minos Halevi. That's what it's called. Uh, which was basically an encyclopedia on the Miguel Sester. That's what it is. It's kind of prolix, it's long, because that was a style that was popular in the uh, 1500s, late 1400s. Think, for example, the Barbanel and many others. Um, but what he did, therefore, was really, I would say, like encyclopedia. Pusik by Pusik, he brings all these different people you never heard of. Sometimes he offers his own. Uh, and it's really cool because he had to get a comprehensive look at the different Pesukim of Miguel Esther. If this is a subject that turns you one, happens to be a subject that's always been a favorite of mine. Uh, the only thing is, as I say before, it's long. I first bought it years ago. First of all, I never heard of it. Then when I was a kid or younger, well, long ago, I started seeing in the Ginsburg book when he has the Legend of Jews, he brought his stuff in on um, Miguel Esther. We brought different uh, Midrashim. That's why I heard about it. Medishah Bagurian and all this. There's a whole literature, Midrashic literature, on um, the Miguel Sester that many people are not familiar with. The scholars, of course, are. Uh, and these are real Midrashim. You understand? No, there's not some baloney thing. They're genuine Midrashim, which are used in this farm. And they have different stories. Uh, uh, so, in other words, it's not only the, it's not only the Agatha that you come across in the Gemara Megillah. Of course, that's the fundamental. It's not only the Agatha you come across in the Medish Rabba or in Miguel's Esther. Of course, that's a fundamental too. But there are others as well. And like I said before, this Medish Lakatov and uh, Abagori and this, that, and the other. And I used to see he's always quoting Minos Alevi or MH or something like that. I said, what the heck is this? I was much younger. And I made it my business to find out. And if I was a safer, it's a book written by a guy in the 1500s named Alkabes, the same guy wrote Lakadodi. When I first got my first copy, long, long, long ago, it was like one of these old books, you know, with just a mass of words, you know. wasn't the print was so bad, just a mass of words. hard to read through it. So I did a little bit, you know, mastered it. But about 25 years ago, approximately, or 30 years ago, I went in the bookstore, and lo and behold, I saw Merkusset, I think it was somebody from, from Muncie. I could even look the name up if I wanted to. Uh, it's, uh, what do you call it? The he did it right. It's like two volumes now, and if you're interested at all, what I'm saying, you should go to the bookstore. And he did it right. They published the Manos Alevi with like a kahati at the bottom. In fact, two types. One is called Chatsi Ayuri, and the other one's called I'm looking at Rikha Sharayach. Doesn't matter. And at the top is the text of the Manos Alevi in nice block print, so it's easy to read. And at the bottom, as they say before, is 
what more or less what we would call a kahati. You understand? In other words, he's making it, he's using it in, in simple Hebrew. Okay? Um, even as a part that I would describe as having a kind of Rashi aspect to it, to when there's a obscure phrase, you know, uh, he kind of, uh, he did it good. And he also, at the end, has wonderful indexes. Uh, they real. this obviously, let me put it this way. It's a person like myself. He found this as a labor of love, and he put a lot of time and effort to it to open up the book to a much wider uh, group of readers, Tabula uh, Bracha, and uh, as far as I'm concerned, he made this a book that can be read just about by everybody, especially if you use the Kati part. And I, but let me say this, the Minos Halevi is a big fat book in the sense that it covers every Pusik in the Megillah, and uh, I don't think, in my opinion, you can read it through straight, but rather treat it as an encyclopedia, and so take, for example, this week is Purim, coming up on Thursday, I'm speaking on Saturday night before that, so you have a couple of days if this is your interest, and ask yourself the following question, what Pusik or Sukim or something like that interests you in Megillah? So let's just say, for example, you say, Kasher Avadati Avadati, you know, just make it up. Or, uh, you know, whatever, you, whatever it is. So you get the Minos Halevi, and he goes through his thing, and he gives you all these different Mepharshim, up to the 1500s, of course, including friends of his who wrote commentaries in the Book of Esther. So apparently there must have been, you know, a, a Galico and a Gakon, people you never heard of. Uh, obviously, the Sefer Miguel Esther must have been of great interest to these Svarnim. I can see why. Because Queen Esther was like a Murano. Uh, I think I mentioned before that the Spanish-Portuguese Muranos, who is not the group of our hero, but was his relatives, looked at Queen Esther as an archetypal Jewish girl in a bad shape. Um, they must have conflated Haman with the Inquisition. And therefore, they're just very interested in Miguel's Esther, especially from a Kabbalistic perspective, because Miguel Esther opens their, you know, Esther is the, you know, Yalsa Shachar, and they believed that with 1492, was such a disaster, it can only mean the Mashiach is coming. They couldn't live with the idea that they simply went to the wrong place at the wrong time, and that the Jews in Spain were getting screwed over by history with no, uh, you know, redeeming qualities. There must have been a redeeming quality, and they must have seen the Mashiach is coming. Uh, that's how they all write that. Barbadell, our hero, and many others, as I'll get to in a minute. But I just want to talk up, as I said before, the Manos Alevi, especially with the new print, which is how they sell it now. So if you go to this farm store or something like that, you order online, you get, you know, the it's a two-volume business, and it really is very good if you're the type of person that cares about, you know, all the nitty-gritty details in, in the um, in the, in the uh, Miguel Sester. Now, he's not the only one out there. For those who don't, who can't read Hebrew, um, but you want to get some idea what the Minos Alevi is, some idea, I would recommend the following. The Art Scroll put out, uh, what's it called now? There's a guy in Israel. I don't know any of these people. Volovsky. Uh, and he made a thing very good called, Mashe, I'm holding in my hand, Mashe Loseich, that's the name of the book, Miguel Soster, Esther Baderich Shal, Shalos You ask shot questions, I guess, as he goes to Megillah, and he gives you, you know, Igmar says this, and this one says that, and Rashi says this, you know, like bullet points. And the art scroll liked it enough that they made an English um, kitzer of it, I guess, called The Answer Is, 
Miguel says the answer is, I don't get any money from art school. Believe me, uh, the opposite. But nevertheless, I'm sharing with you because they'll ask, you know, uh, it, it, it goes to Miguel's Esther asking questions. You've seen how God is of this type. And one of them is going to be, and very often, the bullet points include the Minos Alevi. So the person in English, who reads English only, or doesn't have the time, but is interested whoever <coughs> excuse me, with every degree that, excuse me, I'm, I'm allergic to myself. Uh, <laughs> if whoever's interested in seeing some ideas on the Minosa Levy, I would get this art scroll book, and as you go through it, you'll see he's often brought down. For example, I'm just picking here at random. Uh, uh, Mordechai refused to bow down. Why did Mordechai refuse to bow down to Haman? So he's got this one, this one, this one. And he says, Minosa Levy says, Mordechai was willing to endanger his life for Kiddush Hashem in order to atone for the Jewish people's bowing down to the idols in days of Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, well, you know, like that. Uh, now, he's got other opinions, but if you're asking me, what does the Minos Alevi say? So I'm just giving an example that here's a, a way you can access this in English and get a, a bunch of tidbits, you know, right? Uh, why does the king remove his signet ring and give it to Haman? You know, by Yasser Amelchus Tabato. And again, different opinions, but the Minos Alevi says that, uh, you know, Cinema Kalkel Sashura, Hatred distorts that which is standard. Under normal circumstances, I'm reading, a king does not remove his signet ring and give one of his ministers. Achashosh hated the Jews even more than Haman. And when he heard Haman's plan to annihilate them, he was so happy, he removed the signet ring and gave him his expression of his wholehearted consent. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's cute. I mean, it's not the only opinion out there, but it's one of the really good ones. I can tell you that he hit a home run with this in the sense that Kla Yisrael was Makal the Safer. And all the Gedolim in the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, and 1900s all quote and use the Minos Levi. It's not considered, it's not used like some Stalman de Velterine, some Pirish from Miguel Sester, you know, it's like a cutesy cutesy. It's used in a halocha. It's famous, uh, how's it go? That uh, they'll bring down, uh, what's the purpose of Shalach Monas? And, you know, the Minos Levi versus Trumas Adeshen, if I remember correctly. And, you know, one holds that the purpose of Shalach Monas is to promote Ava Viachwa, and the other one says it's to provide poor people with food. You know, you look in the Minos, oh, what's it called? The Mursky book, you know, Hegan uh, And he's got, like, some essay on there where he compares the two opinions. Well, many postkim have brought down Minos Levi in this context. I'm simply saying that uh, it's treated as, like, almost like a halachically significant work, not just a commentary in the book of Esther. And so it's not me that's giving a whole uh, a talk to this book. I'm informing you of a fact that the Manos Halevi has always had a special status among this farm in Kla Yisrael. And uh, in the Shalas and Shubas it's, it's dealt with. And in other places, I'm so far I remember, other places. So he really hit a home run just with this idea of instead of giving his father-in-law a, you know, fruit plate, <laughs> he gave him a uh, book. Now, I don't believe that what you and I hold in our hands, the Minos Halevi, is the same book he gave his follow Nobody can write that whole thing, you know what I mean, in a short time. I think he gave him the bare bones of it, and then added to it later on. Nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying anything bad. I think he gave him a basic parish on Esther. It was a hit. Uh, 
I guess he wanted a bonus from the father. Father, I don't know the story. None of us, excuse me, none of us know exactly what's going on. Because if he really was being supported by me, he didn't have anything to worry about. But anyway, uh, he must have added to it. And by the time it got published or whatever, it was a much fatter book. And it's the book we have today. It's really very good. But I did have to warn you, it's written in a very prolix way. But if you get this safer that I just mentioned by this uh, Satmar guy, whatever he published it out, the uh, Chatsiria, whatever it's called, you could just read the Bukati at the bottom. You have a very good idea of what the contents of the safer is. But, you know, teach his own. And, you know, it's a, it's a, you can see it's a book I like. Doesn't mean everybody else does, but it's always been a favorite and a classic in Claudius Roll. A classic. Now, he learned X number of years in Yeshiva. He ended up going to a near, that was in Salonika. He ended up going, I think, to see Adrianople, which is not that far away. Again, near in the in the Balkans part of the uh, Turkish Empire. Um, here, he seems to have had contact with Yosef Karo, with a young guy at that time. And uh, the Rosh Hashiva in Salonika, Riosa Taitasak, was into Kabul also. Uh, very big. Uh, I saw an Arya Kaplan or something that, you know, he was into a Balafia's couple, which is weird, mom's weird. And um, it's not surprising, because I'll tell you again, they lived through what they regarded as a cataclysmic times. You and I today look at it differently. So they're kicked out of Spain. No, it's bad. The Jews are kicked out of a lot of countries. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? At this moment, Jews have been kicked out of Ukraine, you know? I mean, it, it, it's, it's bad. I You know, I'm not undermining it. I'm not making fun of it. It's bad. It happens in the history of Claudius Roll. You might even say from a Zionist perspective, don't expect any uh, Chutzlar's place to be permanent, baby. You know, that was the trouble with the Spanish Jews, it seems. They were so hooked on Spain, that was like a, a trauma when they were kicked out of Spain. They shouldn't have been so hooked on Spain. But they were. And the only way they can interpret what happened, and it was very cruel with the Inquisition and all the rest of it, the only way can interpret what happened is, it must be Mashiach's site. And therefore, 1492-1, they're looking, it's got to be Mashiach time. Uh, how do you see that? How do you know? That gives you Kabbalah, get it? So a lot of these people, I think, were into Kabbalah. I mean, seriously, Kabbalah, and this is the age of the Rizals, eventually, and the Cardaviro, who's, who's, who's a of his, uh, or brother-in-law, I should say, they're super into Kabbalah because the Mamish felt that uh, the expulsion from Spain had been like the Hevli later, the Hevli Mashiach, and it could read all kinds of stuff into it. So our hero was part of that. Now, uh, from a super Kabbalistic point of view, you want to make Aliyah. In his case, and here's the second famous thing about him. There's basically three that I can think of, maybe four, that I want to talk about. The second thing is, so the Monas Halevi is classic, and the second thing I'm about to tell you is also classic. And that is, that he uh, hooks up with Yosef Karo, and today, together they get into Kabbalah stuff, and especially they start to take in little shoes. This is quoted in the um, Shlaw. So the Shlaw, as I've talked about before, is is kind of like a legal to a great degree of a lot of sources around that time. And he found, he got a hold of it and published, made famous, a letter which is supposed to be from Shlomo Levi Alkabetz, and it's a classic. Uh, it's in the Shlaw in Masech de Shavuos. And I'm looking at it right now in my rusty, trusty Shlaw over here. The one with the Nakudos. 
And it says, So he used to hang around. We'd say like this. He used to hang out with Shlomo with Yosef Cairo. That gives you the type of guy he was. He used to hang out with Shlomo with Yosef Cairo. And he writes, he provides a letter that's supposed to have been from Shlomo Levi Alkabetz, which goes like this, quote, To Ulochem, I want you to know, that I and the Chosid, that's Yosef Karo, and a couple others, we decided to stay up all night in Shavuos. It wasn't done before. We did it. And we learned the whole night without one sec, without any hefsek. So listen to this. And I put together the following learning schedule that we all followed that night. We shown a Torah, So just think about yourself. It's a Sephardim, you know, like that. And they read the whole Brashis out loud. Uh, up the, the you know when he until Vayichulu, Penim Kol Gadol, Achar Kach B'Chodesh Ashlishi, which is the story of the Ten Commandments. B'Chodesh Ashlishi, the Tzitz Beneis Rami, Eretz Yisrael, and so forth. On Sofa Sidra, and then Mishpatim El Moshe Amar, on Sofa Sidra. You know the end of Mishpatim where he goes up to the cloud. Omi Parsha Veschan of Ikra Moshe Al Kol Yisrael, on Sofa Parsha Shema Yisrael. So in other words, not what you do today. Uh, I never done in my life to take on those shows, but I know what it is. It's not identical with what I'm reading. These are selections. Um, and on Vayal Moshe Adlene, Kol Yisrael, and then the Haftorah of Ahibu Shloshin Shon and Yecheskel, and the Haftorah Tefillah Chabakuk Navi. So they recited all these things aloud with great intensity and so forth. Umizmer Yokom Elokim, Hashemayim Kisi, in other words, the 19th Psalm. And then the 68th Psalm, Piyakach Alpha Beso. I don't know what that is. Oh, I see. The 119th Psalm. You know, Ashi Shasholach Vatsas Rishon. No. Ashi Shomri Mishpat. You know, Alpha, 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 Bez, 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 Gimel. 119th Psalm. Below Ashiros. Um, and they didn't do the Psalms 120, you know, Sherem Alts and all that. Achach Megillah Shir Sherem. It's all in one night. Bechol Megillah Rus. I don't know what that's all about. The last part of Dibri Yamam, which is about the Chorban. So in other words, imagine that. Right? They're all reciting in unison, all this stuff together with big Kavana. That's weird. And then we learned Kabbalah. And we start in Mishnah in the middle of that, then you saw the scene where the angel speaks to Yosef Karo with the voice coming out of the throat of Yosef Karo. Right? Because that's how these things worked. That you didn't see a, a, a an angel appear like a genie but you heard a strange voice coming out of one of the people, which was not his voice. In this case, HaChosed Nitro Rachma Prokhi, the Yosef Karo, Kol Gadol, Bechituch Osias, Bechashchen Vayishon Lovinim, and all the people around didn't understand, but I guess we few did. So it must have been a base miniature with a bunch of people in it. 
and these guys were in a corner or something like that, and they were doing their own thing, and all of a sudden they heard the real car go on, a different voice come out of him. Uh, it was a sweet voice. It got louder and louder, and we clapped. And they freaked out. I would too. And here's the famous story of what we call the Magen Mishan, the Magen. The angel calls the Magen. And it said, Shimu Yididai HaMahadrin Mena Mahadrin Yididai Ahuvai Shalom Lochem Ashrechem Biashrei Yolaretchem Ashrechem Bolam Hazeh Ashrechem Bolam Habo Asher Samtem Am Nashchen Latrin Velayelazeh You put on yourself the task of adorning me this night. Asher Zek HaMashanam Nofatez Roshi Nachmi for years, Shavuos has gone by, and I don't have a Teres Roshi. And I've been rolling in the in the dust, uh, in the garbage heap. And you put the crown back. Meaning, by learning with such intensity all night on Shavuos, which is the night of giving the Torah, you revived me. You know, starking yourselves. I want you to know you're B'nai Aliyah, you're an elite. There's a chisim liyos mehechen amalka, v'kol teraskem behevel pichen, olof nei kodesh barchu. Can you imagine if you heard this, and again, it's coming out of the voice of one of them, and he can't control it, maybe he passed out, and it's a different sound of voice than his own, and it's like one of these, uh, almost horror movies, except that it's good. Uboka kama virim, bekamer kimat sha'ola, umalochim shosku, usrafim domamu, v'achai yizomdu, Whoa. So in other words, you guys hit the jackpot by learning this way tonight. And I am the Mishnayas, the angel which represents the Mishnayas. The only problem is you didn't have a minion. It was only a few of you guys. If you had have a minion... Then you really bust the heavens. I will inkos in this alechem, but what you did was also impressive. You didn't sleep all night. And because of all the chaverim, meaning the Talmud Chachamim, are doing this, you're not like these other schleppers who sleep in bed all night shavuos. Which is bad, you know, upon the 60 of death. You know, the stinking bed. If you knew how much Tsar, so the Tsar the Shechina, you know, the Tsar was feeling in general, you would never be happy. You never smile. Because it's on your account. So this is the idea of Gol Sashchina, the Tzin is in Tsar, because of the Averis and the neglect, shall we say, of Kla Yisrael, which you guys are not. Don't make him sick. Wow, I mean, that's quite a statement. Keep it up. 
and make sure in Yom Kippur you you shry out loud, uh, you know, um, what you call it, in that way. And he says, we stood up, and basically our pants fell down. But I mean, you know, and we continued to learn the way we were told. That's the point I want to say. And the angel tells him, Make Aliyah. It's not always a good time to go. Now's a good time to go. Right? So make your move. And don't worry about your property in Chutzlars. You'll do well in Israel. Like Joseph said to the brothers, if you'll listen, then everything will be, you'll eat the good of the land. I, the Shekinah, will take care of you. Whoa. Okay. And he says, it's called And he told his other things. And we were all so freaked out that we all broke down crying from joy. I mean, that must have been a scene. This is a movie, right? That must have been a scene. And we heard the Tsar of the Shechina, the Kol Chol and his pitiful voice. And we learned up a storm without a hefzik until the morning. And he goes on to say more. If you're interested, you can look it up yourself in... Um, in the Shlaw and Masech de Shavuos. It's very famous. Um, it's a classic text. And it's from Alkabetz. In other words, we don't know this from Yosekari. He doesn't say it. He has a, there's a saver called Magi Masharm, which is supposed to record all the conversations or some of the conversations he has with this Magi. But the original place is from a third party, which is our hero, which goes to show you the type of guy he is. Like I said before, maybe... He didn't publish the Sefer in Shulchan Aruch or whatever. Maybe he didn't write a peerage like Pnei Yeshua. But he's one of the elite, okay? And he's one of the Bnei Ali over here. And therefore, do not be surprised that within a short time, he and his wife hit the road and make Aliyah. Now, one of the things that enables this is the following international event. As I said before, in order to understand this, you'd have to go to the, go online and do some map work. If you're interested, the Ottoman Turkish Empire, by the time you get to the early 1500s, basically is the Balkans. You know, let's say Greece, Yugoslavia, and uh, Bulgaria, which is a big area. And uh, Turkey itself, the area of Turkey today. So Eretz and all this was ruled by Egypt, a different country, the Mamluks. But in 1517, notice when our hero was very young, the Turkish Sultan Selim conquered the Middle East. He conquered Syria, Israel, and Egypt. Um, it's actually an interesting period from the Islamic law. Uh, they weren't supposed to fight fellow Muslims, but they did. And that means that there now began a period of 400 years. 400 years in which there are no borders in the Middle East. It's all ruled by Turkey. So if you're a Jew living, for example, in Greece and Salonika, and you want to travel to Palestine to to, to uh, Yerushalayim or Tzfas or anywhere else, 
It's no passport. It's all one country. This was a big factor to facilitate the Aliyah of Sephardim to Israel. Wherever they're living in Turkish Empire, you can now move to Israel if that's what you wish to do. And they did. And so our hero would be a member of the first generation or so to start the modern Yishuv of Eretz Yisrael. From a technical point of view, you might refer to the Bartanura in 1490, but the 1500s is when it really gets off the ground. It wasn't massive numbers, but it was important numbers. And starting the 1500s, Eretz Yisrael resumes its place as an important center of Yiddishkeit, which it had not been for a thousand years, for a long time. Tell me a Rishon that you can think of who's from Israel. You can't. They're from Ashkenaz, they're from Svard, they're from North Africa, perhaps, sometime from Italy a little bit, Provence, not from Is not from Palestine. Isn't that interesting? Right? Not Rashi, Tosa, the Rosh, the Ritva, the Ron, blah, blah, blah. And not from Eretz Israel. Israel was a backwater. Even when the Ram tried to move there, he said it ain't gonna work. But now in the time of our hero in the early fifteen hundreds, especially under this Kabbalistic impetus and this Sephardic impetus and so forth, and the political situation is now good. So now you see people moving to Eretz Yisrael. Okay? Um, our hero would be one of the first. He ends up in Svas, which is what made Svas Svas, because he was Mashpi and others. Apparently must have had a reputation. I'm not 100% sure. I'm, I don't want to go so far and say it's a holy man. You know, I mean, it sounds cliche, but obviously he's an impressive individual. And there's no question he had a highly romantic personality. And so he reminds in many respects of Yudah Levi. When these guys get to Israel, they're the type that say, can't you smell the Kedusha? By the way, he does write this way. Can't you smell the Kedusha? When they say, Avir Ar Machim, it's not a legend with them. It's not just a figure of speech. They get, ah, smell, take a whiff. Can't you smell the Kedusha, the Tahara, etc., etc.? He was that type. Um, he was that type. So, that's what I mean when I say, he knew how to learn, no question about it. And as you know, Yosef Karin and others all eventually moved to Sfaz and make it like a super high, viral hot place for learning on the one hand and Kabul on the other. Just consider that the major post in the 1500s lived a good part of his life in Israel, in Sfaz, Yosef Karo. So whereas the Rambam wrote his book in Egypt and the Tour wrote his book in Spain, and many others did similar things. The Shulchan Aruch, not the Beis Yosef, but Shulchan Aruch was written in Israel. That shows you it's a new day. Now, it took 400 years till you get to the state of Israel. I get that. But the beginnings of the beginnings are from the period I'm talking about and are, I would say, heavily associated with uh, Shlomo Alkabetz. But he's coming from not political, but a super fafrumta uh, way of thinking because that's who he is. He's a super fafrumta guy. As I said before, he had a romantic, clearly, personality. And when he's in Spas, which he lives for the rest of his life, uh, he's friendly with Moshe Cordovero, who, as you know, becomes Mr. Kabul over there before the Rizal showed up. I'm not an expert in this stuff, but they say that a lot of the writings of Shlomo Akhabetz uh, are, are exactly what you find in Moshe Cordovero. So obviously they must have schmoozed on this stuff. And uh, that means that it's very Masudr, very organized. The uh, Pardis Ramonu of Shlomo of Moshe Cordovero is sort of like, um, I don't want to sound too silly, but they call him the Rambam of Kabbalah, let's put it that way. 
until the Arizal showed up and knocked him out. So that's uh, you know in-house stuff. So imagine him being over there. He wanted very much to uh, get into Kabbalah stuff. As far as I can tell, I could be wrong about this, but as far as I can tell, he didn't have someone who taught him. So in Kabbalah, strictly speaking, you're supposed to learn from somebody who's already got it. And so as much as I can tell, these would be guys who try to get it on their own, and that's why he grows to graves, you know, the garish and all this, where you hang around graves of famous tzaddikim and try to, you know, suck it up, smell it in, you know, absorb it that way, or super davening, or super rolling the ground. Shabbos would be a major element in trying to access this, because it was, we know in Shabbos you get in the Shami Yisairah. To you and me, the Shami Yisairah is just expression. To him, the Shami Yisairah means, oh, now I have extra powers to get in Kabbalah stuff. That I couldn't before. And he's a player. Okay? Now, he doesn't become famous as a Makobol, the way Cordovero does, or the Arizal, or the Guri Ari. But he's definitely a very important player in all that <clears throat> stuff. And what's funny is like this. His Kabbalistic poem for the Shami series is Chododi, as we know. So he, that's the third of his things. The first is Menos Halevi. The second is the famous letter in the Shlaw. And the third, of course, is Chododi, which knocks the others out of the ballpark. Um, I would say in general, I did yesterday uh, a talk about, for Tefillah, about Atzkotzeitz, which is the poetry of the Kaliri. Um, Lezer Kaliri. The, as I mentioned before, yesterday a little bit, the Spanish poets who are super classy, I mean, Ibn Gabiro, Yehud Alevi, Moshe Ibn Ezra, those types, look down upon the Paitanim as lousy poets. Uh, and from a strictly aesthetic point of view, you can certainly make such a case. By contrast, in Sfat, from the point of view of the Arizal and many of the other people like that, including our hero, uh, this was wrong. Matter of fact, in my opinion, they probably had a low opinion, these guys of the Meshore Svarad. I'm not sure why, but I suspect because they also wrote Shirei Chol. Uh, each one of these famous poets, <coughs> who are fantastic poets, who wrote all this famous Piyutim stuff, Again, Ibn Gabiro, Moshe Ben Ezra, Abed Ben Ezra, uh, Levi, of course, and others like that. Also, had Shiri Cheshik, Shiri Chol. That must have been a huge turnoff to uh, the guys in, in Sfas. You know, they got no time for anything that's even, forget X and R, even, you know, even PG. You know, they got no time for that. Zero. Just look what Yezakara has to say about, what's the name? Uh, Emmanuel Aromi, my goodness. But uh, therefore, they look back on the on the Mashore before you know Kaliri and people like that. He said that's the really way to go. And out of this whole atmosphere, our hero wrote the Chadodi, which I'm sure living in Svada used to go out like the rabbis and the Gemara into the fields and all that to welcome Shabbos. So they feel Shabbos in a way that you and I don't. Uh, as they say before, they really you know the Neshama Yisrael is a reality by them. And they want to use that to get deeper in Kabbalah. Uh, there's no question in my mind that this is all part of a project to be ready for the Mashiach. 
which they figure is coming in any minute. If it's not coming in any minute, it's certainly coming in the year 1540. They had reasons for that. Now, it didn't happen. You know, I get that. But I'm talking about the way they thought. And as a result, if you came to the spot in the 1500s, you would see Shlomo Levi Alkabach there, and uh, he'd be doing his Kabbalah stuff. Um, maybe he was a dying there also. I don't know. It's not clear. It's not clear to us. Uh, but he'd be a big kach level in the town. When you had uh, uh, the, you know, the Beis Yosef, the, Ma, Ma, the way they called the Mabit, uh, eventually the Ari, the Ramak, and the whole, and then and the, the Alshech, and all these guys hung out there over there. And, uh, you know, what's that, Zikri? What am I thinking about? Uh, you know, Sefer Haranim. The whole galaxy of people, Alkabetz will be one of them. Alkabetz will be one of them. Uh, it's just very interesting we know that the Chododi really took off and really became viral, much more even than the Menos Halevi. If I ever talk about Shlomo Alkabetz, and people say, who the heck is that? You know, I'm not going to say the Menos Halevi, I say Chododi. Oh, okay. Which, of course, is the acrostic, you know, Shomra B'zachar B'dibrecha, Shlomo Halevi, you know. I don't have to tell you that. And L'chadodi really took off. It became a key part of one of the great liturgical innovations of the 15-1600s, which is Kabbalah Shabbos. There was a time, long ago, when Friday night, you dive in Mincha, and after you finish Mincha, you said, Baruch <laughs> you know. There's no L'chun Ranana. just went right to Marv. Because it's not Talmudic, and it's not Gaonic. And so in the time of the Rambam and Rashi and all the rest of it, you started Friday night just with Barcho. The same way you start Yanta with Barcho. Any Marv, you start with Barcho. So what's the problem? So where did you and I get L'chun Ranana and all that stuff? It's uh, from this period. It's a Kabbalistic. It's spread by the Talmudia Rizal and the Fans of the Rizal, and 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 uh, because in the Shami Yisera and all the rest of it, and and Shabbos Malkus uh, to them is not just a statement but a certain mystic reality. You understand? When they see Bowie Kala, they mean they mean Bowie Kala, and uh, the personification of that, if I can use that term, is of course the Luchadodi, and therefore it got more. I would I feel safe saying. That's the most popular poem ever in Jewish history because it's spread everywhere. I don't know any community that they don't do, now maybe I'm wrong, but they don't do a Lechad Dodi. Uh, I remember reading once, maybe that there was a Shul in Frankfurt where a Breuer was, a Joseph Breuer, you know, before in uh, Stiebel or something where it was so old that they didn't have, uh, you know, Lechun, they didn't have Kabbalah Shavos. But you'd have to be super duper yekish and beyond, you know, infinity and beyond to be like that. Everywhere else, as we all know, Kabbalah Shabbos spread, and the Chododi, Akedekach, that I think in Prague they say, in some other places, they even had uh, bands and, and musical uh, instruments, you know, up up to including the Chododi, at the end of which start Shabbos, and then they put it away. The Reform movement used it at the time that they, you know you can have organ and but that was the counter argument. So. Um, here you have somebody that hit three home runs, but the third one was a grand slam. The Minosa Levy was definitely a home run, uh, and still is. And like I say before, it's something that any person interested in Miguel Sesterby on a superficial level wants to see. Uh, 
the story about the Tikkun Leil Shavuos and all as a classic. It characterized, it, it formed the Shavuos that we have now and maybe maybe even more than that. Uh, especially if it's really a mag and an angel talking. It's one of those mystical experiences um, that become classic in Jewish lore. And the Chodot, he speaks for itself. Okay? So, again, eventually he died over there. So, again, um, this is a Gadol, but not the one of the type who, as they say, writes a commentary on Gemara, Chadushim and so forth. Not one who writes Shalos and Shubas, because that's not the job he had. Not one who writes a code of Jewish law, because that's not the job he had. But in different genres, I think more people are familiar with the Chadodi than are familiar with the Beis Yosef. <laughs> I think more people are familiar with the Chadodi than are familiar with the Nodabi Yehuda, you know. Uh, you get what I'm saying? So he obviously hit the jackpot in uh, in his poem. And um, to a lesser degree, but a very important degree, I think I would say he hit the jackpot with the Manos Alevi, which came like a, you know, a, a special category itself on Purim and on the, on the Miguel Sester. So he would be part of the galaxy of big Sephardim that really rocked in the 1500s and made Sfas um, one of the most important centers and origins of modern Jewish from culture. It came and it went. By the late 1500s, for various reasons, Sfas fell apart. And even though there was a city of Sfas afterwards, it never attained that kind of hot, white hot, what's the right word, you know, or radioactivity. But it did in the 16th century, um, and he was a key part of that. So, um, I would also say that he's a key part of the idea of the importance of making Aliyah. Because after his time, this became the thing to do. If you're super from, and you can afford it, especially from a couple, that's what you want to do. You want to make Aliyah. Now, it was real hard, and it didn't materialize in large numbers because of uh, the terrible health conditions. A lot of people moved to Israel and died. You had mosquitoes and all this other junk. You really did. I mean, it's not a little thing. And, uh, you know, the, the state of public health was horrible in the Ottoman Turkish Empire. And a lot of people, that's what happened to. So something as simple as that retarded the growth of a large Jewish community over there. Which is, which is just interesting. Uh, in modern times, when the new pioneer Zionists came, they had put a lot of time into the health and getting rid of the malaria and growing eucalyptus trees and draining the swamps and all kinds of junk like that. And uh, uh, as late as 1947, there was some kind of terrible plague that broke out in Palestine among the Arabs who didn't have this health stuff. I forget already what it was. A terrible plague that killed thousands of Arabs. Um, you know, the health stuff in Israel... It's not a small component of what has enabled the modern Yishuv to grow there. Uh, but long ago, instead, you'd have hardy individuals like our hero. And uh, they played an important role in the uh, laying of the foundation, shall we say, for the modern center that Eretz Yisrael has become in our time. So that's what I wanted to share with you. Uh, he obviously, as I said before, was not the regular guy. If you talk to him, he would, you know, living in Israel, he'd say, can't you just... Feel the Kedush over here. And, you know, you'd have to be polite and say, sure. But then you kick yourself and say, how come I don't feel this? Anyway, um, this is what I wanted to share. I think it'll be uh, a 
mention some poor. Once again, I want to wish a Mazdov to the Kruger family and the Simchas. That's very nice. And wish everybody a good week. I hope to have some time this week to talk a little bit about Purim here or there and some other projects. So for now, I'm glad I got this off uh, before midnight. Actually, how's it work? The clock's going to jump forward. I'm not even going to figure that out. With that, I wish you all a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.